after 10, 15, 20, 30 years of subscribing to somebody else's script, they have most likely ended up forgetting about themselves. There's a bigger system than us that dictates the rules and our game is that of complying to those rules as best as we can. And if we don't, we are told with no half terms that we are mavericks and we are troublemakers and we are creating disruption. Hello, you're listening to the Leaders of Learning podcast, the podcast that explores learning in the 21st century with educators, leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world. I am your host, Ling Ling. I'm also the director of Spark Learning Solutions, a company that supports the development of cultural intelligence and intercultural competence of leaders and organizations globally. Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, to be yourself in a world that is constantly trying to make you something else is the greatest accomplishment. We live in a world where standards of beauty, intelligence, and success are impressed upon us. Some of us struggle, fight, and stand confidently in our beliefs. Some of us just follow. It becomes a concern when there is an imbalance between societal expectations and our desires. When this imbalance becomes unbearable, one may find themselves in increasing psychological stress. Mindset may become negative, behaviors may become self-destructive, and one may lose their self-identity. A typical example is that parents expect their children to choose certain career paths, while their children may have a stronger desire to follow a different path. Before we delve into the topic of finding your balance, let me introduce to you Dr. Oberdan Marianetti. Hi everyone, this is uh, Dr. Oberdan Marianetti. Uh, I'm uh, based in Singapore and uh, uh, I'm a, a psychologist uh, trained in the UK. I'm a, a clinical sexologist trained in the US. And today I work with uh, private and corporate clients. With corporate clients, I support leaders at a CEO level, business heads, entrepreneurs, um, be better leaders, increase business performance, uh, be better communicators, and also uh, make changes happen on a large scale within their organizations. Uh, in the private practice, I work with individuals and couples to help them rediscover the power and beauty of their existence, of their relationships, and of their sexuality. What inspired you to transition from a corporate to a private practice? Almost 20 years working with very large multinational organizations. And if I'm honest with myself, in all of almost the 20 years I was there, I always knew it was not the right place for me. I, in nature, tend to be more of a free flow experimental type of person and large corporate by nature are very structured 
very limiting and often they quash any kind of experimental, creative, out-of-the-box way of being and, and doing. It served me well to be in that system for almost 20 years because it made me grow to get to the place where I eventually wanted to be and that I could not have known or I could not, could not have accessed 20 years earlier. It came to the point, however, that I didn't see myself as different enough. And even in the later parts of the 20 years, I was thinking, if I leave the organization, I'm going to be one of thousands or tens of thousands of coaches and leadership experts and what have you. And I'm like, what have I got different? What have I got that is unique to me that I can go offer and make a success of? So in a way, I myself struggled with the very topic that we are going to discuss because I couldn't figure out exactly how to put my uniqueness into a commercially viable option. And of course, I'm being restrictive here to the concept of work. Uh, the, the quest was much deeper and much broader at all levels of existence. It is late in, in, in my corporate time that through personal experiences and through conversations with friends and having moved to Asia in Singapore and got to really experience what the world of sexuality looked like in this end of the world and putting all together those things, personal experiences, conversations and the context in which I was, that made me realize that perhaps there was something for me to do on my own that could be unique enough. I decided to complement my psychology degree, degrees, a, a bachelor's and a master's, with a doctorate in human sexuality to then pursue a career as a private practitioner in clinical sexology. It was a difficult choice to make, having left corporate at the peak of my career as a global head of department with all the benefits and the, the financial rewards that one can imagine, to move into a line of work that best case scenario is unknown, worst case scenario is judged as immoral. And I remember the, the comments at the beginning of this journey when people used to tell me, you're crazy, why are you doing this? Why are you leaving behind this wonderful career? You've got everything you need. Besides, why are you doing it in Singapore? Why didn't you, if you really have to do, why don't you go back to Europe or the States or Australia or countries where there is more acceptance of mental health in general and indeed of sexology and relationship work. But I felt compelled to be here. Something called me to do it new, do it different, because I believe there was an opportunity to open up a market and educate a, a, a region to be more open, to normalize the topics of relationships and sexuality and mental health and how 
in the same way in which we spend plenty of money to go to sign up to gyms on New Year resolutions, which we then never fulfill, or in the same way in which we spend plenty of money to see specialists for knee surgery and plastic surgery, that is perfectly fine to spend money to look after our mental and emotional and spiritual well-being and that this work is not only for the broken. This work is for anyone who wants to improve and integrate themselves in a fuller way. With this choice, I found the way to be unique. I found the way to offer a service that I believe is of great value. It has had huge challenges because indeed I've had to break through barriers that don't accept who I am, what I offer, what I stand for. It's aligned to who I feel I am at this stage of my life. Whether it will work or not, in a way, it doesn't matter. I'm taking it one day at a time and uh, I'm making sure that I stay as close as possible to what I believe my inner value to society and to the world is. It sounds like a familiar story to me because I too have gone through that process when I felt I needed to try something different on an entrepreneurial side. The topic today is finding your balance. Is this something that you see in your practice often and how does it manifest? We, and by we I mean the large majority of people, regardless of culture and geography, grow up conditioned to comply to somebody else's script. This journey begins at birth when, as children, we are taught to comply to the family standards. It moves forward to when we go to school and meet and interact with our peers for the first times where we are uh, demanded to comply to rules and etiquette of how the school system and society expects us to be. It continues at university where we are to a degree mandated the type of topics and education that we need to complete, not only complete, but complete to a specific standard, regardless of the fact that those topics might be or not aligned to who we are. Now, with universities, it's a little bit different because hopefully we get to choose the topics for ourselves. But all of the earlier years, there's much less flexibility. And so by the time we leave and enter the, uh, the world of work, we're already well trained to accept that there's a bigger system than us that dictates the rules. And our game is that of complying to those rules as best as we can. And if we don't, we are told with no half terms that we are mavericks and we are troublemakers and we are uh, creating disruption. And therefore, to maintain peace, to feel accepted, to feel loved, to feel the sense of belonging that as human beings we, we require, we often, not always, end up complying. I see this pattern over and over and over and over. In the time I spent in corporate and doing the work I was doing from one-to-one -one executive coaching all the way to large-scale system change, I've talked to many, 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 many people felt misaligned with the life they had created for themselves in a way, or probably more accurately, the life they had fallen into. 
with a company that says, here's your objectives, here is your standard. If you achieve it, we reward you. If we don't achieve it, we don't like you. Yet again, a script that we have to comply to. This story is so common and I see it continuously with my corporate clients still today. And I most definitely see it in my clinical clients who come to a place in life where they realize that something is missing. Very often they can't, they can't say why or what or what they should do about it. But intuitively, at a, at a gut level, they know something is missing. Sometimes the early manifestations of it might be anxiety, might be a nervous tick, might be an unexplainable illness, might be depression. Other times it might be just a, a milder realization in intuition that something is missing. But the impact that this this conditioning has is devastating and it pervades pretty much all aspects of one's life when the journey walked so far is one further and further and further and further away from what I call one's own essence. You spoke about how moving away from your es essence can be devastating to one's life. So how does it look like in that person's life when they're so far removed from, from their true self, if, if I can call it that? At a superficial level, some of the examples I mentioned are manifestations of that. An intuition at, at, a, at, a, at a gut level that something is missing, uh, depression, uh, anxiety, stress, and so on and so forth. The way it manifests at a more practical level uh, is in the workplace, is in relationships, is in one's own sense of well-being and balance, is in their sexuality, is in their parenting style, is in their attachment to ideals and objects and or addictions. It, it, it's really broad and for everybody it manifests, in my opinion, in, in different ways. Uh, th there's recognizable patterns in the stories that people say and that's perhaps the third layer, slightly below the surface of what I just described, where listening carefully to people's stories who are in this somewhat disconnected state, you seldom hear them speaking I statements, or you seldom hear them refer to and address their needs as created from themselves rather than as a response to somebody else's needs. You hear it in someone who talks about serving and relating to others uh, in what sounds like a pleasing way that is so highly one-sided, where of course the one side is the one in favor of the other party rather than themselves. Once again, there's multi-layers to how it manifests and how I get to experience it. From an individual perspective, a self-perception, if you wish, of how it might feel, the top two layers would apply also, and therefore work, relationships, parenting kind of questions and, and, and problems, the next level of depression, anxiety, etc. And then from an inner experience perspective, questions that people ask themselves like, I don't know what to do. I know I want to do something different, but I'm not sure what it could be. I know I'm not fulfilling my purpose. I know I'm not fulfilling my potential. 
I hate this job, but I'm stuck in it and there's no alternative for me. These kinds of statements that people tell themselves and sometimes externalize uh, can also be signs of how it, uh, it can be recognized. So the narrative you've just mentioned uh, about the inner layer of that disconnect, um, I'm not living my purpose, this is not where I want to be, it sounds to me, like you said, a very common narrative because almost everyone I speak to has that kind of thought. Even I have gone through it myself personally. So what is the difference between those who actually have this kind of narrative and look to you for, for help? What is the difference between those who seek you for help and those who don't? The difference is more than one. First, the fact that they might indeed fall in the category of those who have misaligned and fragmented themselves. And then within the population of the fragmented or misaligned, the second difference is that those who go for help are those who have awakened to the realization that something is missing. So those who are misaligned and blissfully go on with their life, never wondering, never pondering, uh, never realizing what the underpinning currents in their state of beings are, they most likely wouldn't look for help. So the two differences are, these are the people, those who look for help are the people who fall in the group who are somewhat misaligned and fragmented and two, have had some sort of awakening and realization that they need to do something about it. It makes me wonder, is it worth helping people to be awakened to the misalignment or disconnect within themselves? How can we help people become awakened? That's an amazing question. It's dangerous to think that we know best. And I myself have to constantly ask in the clients I see whether, quote-unquote, imposing a frame of reference that is individually centered, that is aiming at awakening this sense of self that I keep speaking about is the right way forward or not. Partly because they might not be ready for it, partly because the, the system that they occupy on a day-to-day basis would not accept them in their new form, partly because perhaps at a more philosophical level, I'm not quite sure that it is the only answer. In fact, I'm almost certain it is not the only answer. And there's so many domains of existence that frankly, trying to narrow them down and and limit them to this idea that we have to be fully aligned to self is highly reductive of human existence. Is it useful to help those who want to be finding out how to align to themselves? Absolutely, yes. And how do we do it? Um, it's a it's a much more difficult answer, in part because circumstances are unique and therefore to come out with a recipe and suggest that is the panacea to figuring out how to uh, find themselves, it would be preposterous. And partly because, again, it's a highly, highly complex question that we are talking about. I would add one thing, which is um, perhaps I would call it an ingredient that regardless of the end recipe, whether a unique one or a generalized one, an ingredient that I believe would absolutely be necessary foundationally to every approach is a sense of presence, a sense of awareness, 
and a sense of mindfulness that needs to be developed. Part of the reason why the individuals in these categories struggle so much is because after 10, 15, 20, 30 years of subscribing to somebody else's script, they have most likely ended up forgetting about themselves to the point where seldom they ask themselves, seldom they prioritize themselves in ways that shine the light on who they are, where they're coming from, what their natural talents might be, what their needs are. And therefore, these are people who don't ask themselves those questions. They don't say, what are my needs? What do I want? What do I aspire to? And I find very, very often, both in, cor both in corporate and clinical practice, that when I get people who are looking to rebalance their life purpose, for lack of better words, and I then ask them at some point or another, okay, so what do you want to do? What do you need? And the answer most often is, I have no idea. And it's really not surprising because, again, for many, many years, they've never asked or indeed they've never been asked that question. So why would they know it? The answers are so deeply, are hidden so deep under many, many, many layers that have become forgotten. And so the work of awareness, of mindfulness, of presence helps in bringing them back to the surface. When people have lost their sense of self, it's because they spent most of their life serving other people. Other people come first before my own needs, before my own wants, my own desires, and, and so on. But certain society, they actually support this kind of self-sacrificial way of, of being. And to finally say, no, this is enough, you know, I want to start taking care of myself, I want to discover myself, I want to learn more about myself, wouldn't it be difficult to operate sort of like in contrast of what society expects of you? And how can we support this kind of transition when society itself doesn't really support it? I mentioned earlier how sometimes doing this work might not be appropriate if the new version of the client goes back to a system that will not accept. What I do say, however, is the client ultimately has a choice at all times. All different cultural ways of being are, in my opinion, to be respected. They exist for a reason. They have a history of hundreds or thousands of years behind them. There are reasons why they exist and they are important reasons and they are a manifestation of the diversity of who we are. So I am not suggesting in the slightest that we ought to become all selfish, that we ought to start being all individualistic and that collective forms of society are inappropriate or damaging in any way, shape or form. What I'm suggesting is that there needs to be a balance. In my clinical work, I see a lot of local clients from Malaysia, Singapore, uh, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Burma. And what I find is that those who come to me, which of course, let's remember, are a biased uh, portion of the society because are those who are experiencing some degree of distress and sometimes as severe as they are suicidal and or have already attempted suicide often I find is because their own experience of the collective demands of the familial expectations and roles that they are driven to, to comply to have become too much to bear. Enough so that for them, those on the extreme end of the spectrum, they would rather take their lives that continue to live this existence that does just not align to who they are. So I'm all for 
a broad and diverse experience of society from the highly individualistic to the highly collectivistic view. But there always needs to be some balance because there's not taking away the fact that at one plane of existence, we are human beings that exist in this body as unique beings with unique characteristics, talents, aspirations, needs, fears, desires, insecurities, and so on. And to completely annihilate them in favor of external expectations, those who I see find it highly, highly pressurizing and damaging. How can we help people like them find balance? If I, if One of my family members or a friend of mine, I see signs that they are going through this disconnect, this imbalance, and perhaps they're not open and ready to seek professional help as, as a loved one. How can I support them? The broad answer I would give, which obviously the details of which would be very contextual, is to help them learn how to set boundaries. Often I find that people who have grown in this complying state of being, and I've used the word already, have somewhat annihilated, themse annihilated themselves in their needs, in their even somewhat, sometimes in their identity. And I want you to imagine as if around each of us, there is a sphere that envelops our entire body. And this sphere is more or less big, more or less closer or further away from our own center. And to visually represent it, the center would be the physical body. In the people who um, there has been this, this disconnect, the sphere is so, so small, so near their body that basically they have no personal boundaries. And they find people in employers, in family members, in friends, in institutions, walking all over the, the vicinity of, of this sphere, which sometimes include the unprotected personal space, that It, it just terrifies them, it suffocates them, it makes them feel, feel prisoners, it makes them feel unheard, unseen, unwanted, unaccepted. And teaching some of these friends of ours, in a way to expand the reach of this fear, at least as far as it includes our personal space, whatever that means, it begins to create some distance between them and these external demands and create, therefore, a space within which they finally can breathe, finally can recognize and come to be a little bit more into who they are rather than who somebody else expects them to be. So there might be situations where there's a certain belief that we hold. So this person has a belief a certain value and they find themselves in a situation where these beliefs can cause a great harm to to this individual. So for example, let's say I know deep down I am uh, homosexual, but I know society doesn't condone it. Uh, what can we do in this situation? My first answer would be with great difficulty. That's how we handle it. Because I have a first-hand experience of this very exact situation with people who exactly clearly are irrefutably know themselves to be homosexual and knowing they're in a country where for men it's still illegal to be in uh, homosexual relationships and activities is highly highly distressing to think about that they might be just free to be whoever they are and again and and, and I don't mean it lightly examples that 
take people to suicide again. So it's definitely an important problem, one that cannot be ignored and one that needs to be addressed. And hence why I say my first answer is they would have to deal with it with a lot of difficulty. The ways in which for people to do that is to seek channel of communication and support networks that they know to be sex positive, by which I mean inclusive in their understanding of sexuality and accepting of the whole breadth of human sexual behaviors. Not only in Singapore, in many parts of the world, there are institutions that uh, promote and support sex positivity. And starting with sourcing information from these institutions and more broadly from reputable internet sources, where there are endless stories of people who have gone through the exact same thing. There's plenty of stories of modern times and of times like in the 60s and the 70s where there were active, quote-unquote, wars against homosexuals and transgender and so on and so forth. So plenty of stories to learn from. To reach out to friends, parents, colleagues who you know to be accepting and open and understanding Third, obviously, to seek professional help where professional help is available from practitioners who are understanding and are open to appreciating, as I mentioned, the breadth of human sexual behavior. The common denominator of all of these options I shared, and of course plenty more around it, is that of not keeping the story within, not running it in an isolated mind and, and world of your own, especially if you're very young, where it becomes very, very easy to broaden the story to very unsettling conclusions and reaching out, seeking support, seeking guidance it would be the, the underpinning thread that I'm, that I'm referring to. So we spoke at great lengths about how devastating this imbalance or this disconnect can be on the self, how would it look like when someone who has already sought help, how would it look like when you finally feel balanced, when you finally feel like, okay, I've reached a space where I'm okay? How does that look like for this individual? How would this person feel? In the broad sense of the term, I don't think there is a I'm okay, I am balanced state. You might say within this context, within this one thing, within this domain, I have found my answers. But as it often is the case, the moment you have answered this part of your life, another part of your life that was unattended or perhaps hidden, all of a sudden emerges because it has been freed of the weight that was keeping it down. And therefore the, works, the work continues. So coming to an absolute sense of I am done, I am balanced, I am okay, will never, in my opinion, take place. But within the specific of one or another domain, most definitely there can be a sense of, of finality. To answer your question, how would it look? Some examples perhaps could help you understand what it might look like. In a corporate setting, it might look like an individual who decides to renew their sense of commitment to the job they're doing and begin to do it in a way that no longer feels stressful because they understood more of where they fit within the system. Or 
perhaps the opposite extreme could be the individual who decides that actually that dream I had of packing all the bags, selling everything I own and retiring in an ashram in India for six months to do that teacher training I've been wanting to do is the right thing to do. Whether they are mid-level management, whether they are a CEO or whatever, I have actually had examples of people who at the end of our work decided to leave the organization. So those could be two examples in with the corporate settings. In a very similar vein, in the personal clinical side, it could be people who, let's say in a relationship, find a renewed sense of vitality in being with the partner they're with. And they show up and they begin to show up as a different kind of partner and start the relationship on a new footing. And again, the opposite is also true. Someone realizes finally, even though intuitively they might have known something about this, that they are in the wrong relationship and that the best thing to do and the healthiest thing to do for all involved is to step out and start a new journey. From an individual perspective, it might be the person who, a student for argument's sake, pressured by parents to go into medicine, might decide that actually performing arts is their world and while they are going to have to deal with the pressures from the family and the consequences of communicating their decision, they decide to stick by that and they decide to go for performing arts rather than becoming a medical doctor, etc., etc., etc. Any parting tips for our listeners who are trying to find balance in their life? Two come to mind. The first one is a, a reiteration of what I said earlier. The one ingredient that I imagine with no certainty, but I imagine being key to any form of reconnecting to self is that of working on our ability to be mindful, our presence, our, our, our awareness of self and of what's around us at any one moment of time. The second thing is a pattern that I recognize in, in my work where people who come in search of their purpose very, very often, if not even always, begin their dialogue with me by asking me, I'm not too sure what to do next. And a lot of the work we then do together is to shift that perspective from what do I do next to who do I want to be next? Because you see, purpose is not defined by what you do, it's the other way around. What you do is likely to change with time because we evolve, we learn new things, new opportunities show, at the, show up at the door. And therefore, even if we're embarking in this thing that we think it's finally our purpose, we might find at some point in our life that it is no longer, or perhaps it has finished serving the purpose that we expected. But what remains true is who we are in that activity, in that job. And therefore, learning to understand who you want to be rather than what you want to do could be another way of becoming closer to yourself, to your needs, to your understanding of your being, to your talents, and so on and so forth. Those probably would be my two parting messages. Excellent. Thank you very much for your time, Oberdan. Thank you very much. 
That was Dr. Oberdan Marinetti, a qualified psychologist and clinical sexologist. This is our final episode for our first season. We will take a break and we'll be back with more exciting interviews in our second season. Stay tuned. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcast. Every rating helps us build credibility and attract new listeners. This is your host, Ling Ling, and thank you for listening to the Leaders of Learning podcast.